Hello, and welcome to this month's podcast. I am Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care. This month, we are pleased to publish four editorials, five original research papers, a teaching case, a letter to the editor, and several book reviews. We also publish seven papers related to the Institutional Review Board, or IRB. Sarah, tell us more about what we can expect in the October issue of Respiratory Care. The first paper in this month's issue is Ventilation Patterns Influence Airway Secretion Movement by Volpe et al. from Sao Paulo, Brazil and St. Paul, Minnesota. In a series of laboratory experiments with a test lung system, they examined the role of ventilator settings and lung impedance on secretion, retention, and expulsion. Known quantities of a synthetic dye-stained mucus simulant with clinically relevant properties were injected into a transparent tube the diameter of an adult trachea and exposed to various mechanical ventilation conditions. Mucus simulant movement was measured and examined with image analysis software. The authors tested two mucus simulant viscosities and various peak flows, inspiratory-expiratory flow ratios, intrinsic positive end expiratory pressures, ventilator waveforms, and impedance value. Ventilator settings that produced flow bias had a major effect on mucus movement. Intrinsic positive end expiratory pressure generated by elevated minute ventilation moved mucus toward the airway opening, whereas intrinsic positive end expiratory pressure generated by increased airway resistance moved the mucus towards the lungs. Interlung transfer of mucus simulant occurred rapidly across the carinal divider between interconnected test lungs set to radically different compliances. The mucus moved out of the low-compliance lung and into the high-compliance lung. The authors concluded that the movement of mucus simulant was influenced by the ventilation pattern and lung impedance. Feasibility and potential cost-benefit of routine isofluorine sedation using an anesthetic conserving device, a prospective observational study, is presented by Lair et al. from Brest, France. This was a prospective observational study to assess the feasibility, benefits, and costs of routine isofluorine sedation via the Anaconda anesthetic administrative device. They included 15 adult patients who required greater than 24 hours of deep sedation. Conventional intravenous sedation with a benzodiazepine and opioid had been administered according to a sedation protocol that included a predetermined target Ramsey scale sedation score. They then switched the patients to inhaled isoflurane via the anaconda and measured sedation efficacy, cumulative dose, and daily cost of sedation. Adverse events were prospectively defined and monitored. The sedation goal was reached with isoflurane in all 15 patients. Hemodynamic changes were non-significant and no renal or hepatic dysfunctions were observed. The frequency of meeting the sedation goal was significantly better with isoflurane than with the author's usual sedation protocol. 
with isoflurane awakening from sedation was always achieved in less than four hours despite some long duration sedations of up to fourteen point five days the overall daily cost of the two sedation protocols was not different in the whole group of fifteen patients but in the subgroup of seven patients who required a mean midazolam infusion larger than the average dose the cost difference was very significant the authors concluded that routine ICU isofluorine sedation with the anaconda is easily feasible, effective, safe, and has a relatively short awakening period. In some patients with sedation difficulties, this sedation method may significantly decrease sedation cost and enhance sedation efficacy. Next, we have Wee's detection in the pediatric intensive care unit, comparison among physician, nurses, respiratory therapists, and a computerized respiratory sound monitor by Prodhan et al. from the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. The authors prospectively studied 11 patients in the pediatric ICU. A physician, nurses, and respiratory therapists auscultated the thorax of patients and recorded their opinions about the presence of wheeze at baseline, and then every hour for six hours. The clinician auscultated while the PulmoTrack computerized respiratory sound monitor recorded the lung sounds. The data were analyzed by a technician trained in interpretation of acoustic data and by a panel of experts blinded to the source of the recorded data who scored all tracks for the presence or absence of wheeze. The PulmoTrack and expert panel were in agreement on detection of wheeze during inspiration expiration, and the whole breath cycle. The PulmoTrack was significantly more sensitive than the physician, nurses, or respiratory therapists. However, the specificity of the PulmoTrack was not significantly different from that of the clinicians. The authors concluded that between the physician, respiratory therapists, and nurses, there was agreement about the presence of wheeze in critically ill patients in the pediatric intensive care unit. Compared to the objective acoustic measurements from the PulmoTrack, the intensive care unit staff was similar in their ability to detect the absence of wheeze. The PulmoTrack was better than the staff in detecting wheeze. Walsh and Volsko from Youngstown, Ohio present Readability Assessment of Internet-Based Consumer Health Information. The objective of this study was to determine the readability of internet-based consumer health information offered by organizations that represent the top five medical-related causes of death in America. The authors hypothesized that the average reading grade level of internet-based consumer health information on heart disease, cancer, stroke, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and diabetes would exceed the reading level recommended by the United States Department of Health and Human Services. From the websites of the American Heart Association, American Cancer Society, American Lung Association, American Diabetes Association, and American Stroke Association, the authors randomly gathered 100 consumer health information articles. They then assessed each article with 
three readability assessment tools and categorize the articles per the readability categories of the Department of Health and Human Services, easy to read or below 6th grade level, average difficulty of 7th to 9th grade level, and difficult or above a 9th grade level. All the articles exceeded the 7th grade reading level and were in the difficult category. The articles from the American Lung Association had the lowest reading level scores with each of the readability assessment tools. The authors concluded that there is a need for consumer medical information to be written at the recommended reading level of the Department of Health and Human Services to increase the likelihood of consumer comprehension. Sleep and respiratory function after withdrawal of non-invasive ventilation in patients with chronic respiratory failure is presented by Petit Jean et al. from Lyon, France. The authors evaluated six stable patients with restrictive chronic respiratory failure who were being treated with home non-invasive ventilation. They conducted a five-step study. Step one, each subject underwent an in-hospital baseline sleep study while on non-invasive ventilation and next morning pulmonary function tests. Step two, at home on consecutive nights, the subject underwent the same sleep study measurements while not using non-invasive ventilation until the patient developed respiratory decompensation defined as oxygen saturation measured via pulse oximetry less than 88% or end-tidal PCO2 greater than 50 millimeters of mercury with or without headaches, fatigue, or worsening dyspnea. Step 3. The patient returned to the hospital for a second overnight assessment, the same as the baseline assessment except without non-invasive ventilation. Step 4. The patient went home and restarted non-invasive ventilation with the pre-study settings. Step 5. After the number of nights back on home, non-invasive ventilation matched the number of nights the patient had been off non-invasive ventilation, the patient returned to the hospital for a third in-hospital assessment. Respiratory decompensation occurred 4 to 15 days after non-invasive ventilation discontinuation. Respiratory events started on the first night off non-invasive ventilation. Spirometry, muscle strength, and sleep architecture did not change significantly. With resumption of non-invasive ventilation, baseline conditions recovered. The authors concluded that non-invasive ventilation discontinuation in patients with restrictive chronic respiratory failure promptly leads to nocturnal respiratory failure and diurnal respiratory failure. The historical, ethical, and legal background of human subjects research is presented by Rice from Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. The current system of human subject research oversight and protections has been developed over the last five decades. The principles of conducting human research were first developed as the Nuremberg Code to try Nazi war criminals. The three basic elements of the Nuremberg Code became the foundation for subsequent ethical codes and research regulations. These are voluntary informed consent, 
favorable risk-benefit analysis, and the right to withdraw without repercussions. In 1964, the World Medical Association released the Declaration of Helsinki, which built on the principles of the Nuremberg Code. Numerous research improprieties between 1950 and 1974 in the United States prompted congressional deliberations about human rights research oversight. Congress's first legislation to protect the rights and welfare of human subjects was the National Research Act of 1974, which created the National Commission for Protection of Human Subjects of Biomedical and Behavioral Research, which issued the Belmont Report. The Belmont Report stated three fundamental principles for conducting human subjects' research, respect for persons, beneficence, and justice. The Office of Human Research Protections oversees Title 45, Part 46 of the Code for Federal Regulations, which pertains to human subjects' research. That office indirectly oversees human subjects' research through the local IRB. Since their inception, the principles of conducting human research, IRBs, and the Code for Federal Regulations have all advanced substantially. Enfield and Truitt from the University of Virginia present the paper, The Purpose, Composition, and Function of an Institutional Review Board, Balancing Priorities. The IRB is one part of the research enterprise designated to protect human subjects. At times, the IRB can feel like an impressive oversight body bound by regulations and designed to inhibit research. However, in reality, the IRB was an attempt by the federal government to streamline a variety of processes to ensure the protection of human subjects. Growing out of a history of unethical scientific research, the principal goal of the IRB is to protect human subjects. At some institutions, the IRB has an additional role to take a second look at proposed scientific methods to ensure the highest quality research. The legal basis, purpose, composition, and function of an IRB and potential challenges in human subjects research are reviewed here. Institutional Review Board Consideration of Chart Reviews, Case Reports, and Observational Studies is presented by Neff from the University of Washington and Harborview Medical Center. Though the need for human subjects review is readily apparent to investigators when conducting a randomized clinical trial, that same requirement is often less obvious when considering activities such as chart reviews, observational studies, or even case reports. In some cases, all that is needed is notification of the IRB, which might then exempt the research. In other cases, Waiver of Consent and Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act authorization may be granted, whereas in some situations, risk to privacy may be considered too great and approval denied. In all cases, including case reviews, quality improvement projects, and chart reviews, the most cautious approach for the investigator is to discuss regulatory requirements with the IRB official to ensure compliance. 
This paper reviews what constitutes human subjects research and how investigators may access protected health information and consider some examples of observational research. Protecting Vulnerable Subjects in Clinical Research, Children, Pregnant Women, Prisoners, and Employees is presented by Schwenzer from the University of Virginia. The federal government has established guidelines and regulations for the protection of vulnerable research subjects, especially children, pregnant women, cognitively impaired persons, and prisoners. In addition, students, residents, and employees are recognized as special research populations. Clinical investigators need to be aware of and use these federal guidelines appropriately. This article provides practical guidance for investigators who conduct research with these patient populations and solutions to the barriers investigators commonly encounter when studying these patient populations. Next, we have another paper by Neff titled, Informed Consent, What Is It? Who Can Give It? How Do We Improve It? The freedom to choose is integral to our daily lives, directs our interactions with patients, and is a key component of our conduct of human subjects research. Most of the historical errors and atrocities in human experimentation had, at their core, a failure of consent. In response to those events, national and international law developed to direct researchers to a process of informed consent to participate in research. The application of this process, though, can be challenging. What does this process look like? Does it require written documentation, and if so, what type? Who can give informed consent? Though researchers worldwide would agree on the concept of informed consent, the nuts and bolts of applying this ideal can create obstacles to researchers, confusion to subjects, and increasing regulations that may or may not help achieve the goal. This paper reviews the current regulatory guidelines, summarizes the types of consent, and considers options for improving the informed consent process. Practical Tips for Working Effectively with Your Institutional Review Board is another paper presented by Schwenzer. The federal government regulates human research with a local IRB at your institution. Your IRB's main responsibility is to protect the rights and welfare of human subjects recruited to participate in research. The IRB is responsible for reviewing and approving all research protocols that involve human subjects. The IRB evaluates your study design to ensure that it has the possibility of answering your research hypothesis. The IRB focuses on the risks and benefits of your research. The IRB wants to know that research subjects are recruited fairly and that the potential for benefit is distributed equitably. They also want to know how you will plan to protect research subjects from the risks of research and how you will manage the data, especially protected health information. Though the Code of Federal Regulations is extensive, this article provides information to help you navigate your research protocol through the layers of regulations, including the Privacy Rule of the Health, Insurance, Portability, and Accountability Act of 1996. 
Whether conducting a simple chart review or participating in a multi-site randomized placebo-controlled trial, if you follow tried-and-true scientific methods and good clinical practice, you will be able to work effectively with your IRB. Finally, we have another paper by Rice titled, How to Do Human Subjects Research If You Do Not Have an Institutional Review Board. Biomedical research with human subjects has expanded outside of traditional medical centers and hospitals into other healthcare entities, such as rehabilitation facilities, freestanding outpatient treatment centers, and even home health agencies. Regardless of the location, federal regulations mandate that all human subjects research must be overseen by an Institutional Review Board, or Ethics Committee, to ensure the research abides by the Code of Federal Regulations. Consequently, all human subjects research must be reviewed and improved by an IRB prior to initiation of any research procedures. Unfortunately, many of these non-traditional research facilities do not have easy access to an IRB. This does not render such research exempt from federal oversight. Clinicians at these facilities have viable options for obtaining IRB approval and legally conducting such research. This manuscript outlines the available options and their pros and cons. Secretion retention and airway clearance are common issues encountered in mechanically ventilated patients. Airway suction is a standard practice in mechanically ventilated patients and a variety of additional approaches to airway clearance are employed in these patients. Retained secretions can contribute to a number of clinical problems including atelectasis, infection, and gas exchange abnormalities. The study by Volpe et al is interesting in that it suggests that ventilator settings might affect mucus flow within the airway. In a lung model, simulate a mucus moved towards the airway opening with expiratory flow bias and moved away from the airway opening with inspiratory flow bias. The possibility of adjusting the ventilator to produce an expiratory flow bias and thus facilitate airway clearance is intriguing. However, whether expiratory flow bias significantly affects secretion retention or major pulmonary complications remains to be determined, as pointed out by N. Tominopoulos in an accompanying editorial. Clinical confirmation of these findings is needed and should be the focus of additional work. This might be of particular value in mechanically ventilated patients with excessive secretions and a weak cough. Sedation is often required in intubated, mechanically ventilated patients in the ICU. Sedation targeted to the protocol adopted by the ICU and monitored using one of a variety of sedation scoring systems is recognized as a standard of care. Excessive sedation has been associated with a variety of undesirable complications, including additional days of mechanical ventilation. This has led to daily interruptions of sedation, commonly referred to as sedation vacations or sedation holidays, and this has been associated with fewer days of mechanical ventilation. Leher et al. report their evaluation 
of a device for delivery of inhaled volatile anesthetics in the ICU. The device they used is not available in the United States and many questions remain regarding the use of inhaled anesthetics in the ICU. These are nicely addressed by Trigari in an accompanying editorial. A variety of safety concerns must be addressed before widespread use of inhaled anesthetics in mechanically ventilated patients in the ICU. Prodon et al. report their evaluation of agreement of wheeze detection between a physician, respiratory therapist, nurses, and digital recordings from a computerized respiratory sound monitor. The study was conducted in a pediatric ICU. They found that the computerized device was better than clinicians at wheeze detection. Pasterkamp, in an accompanying editorial, suggests that a computerized respiratory sound monitor might offer a better understanding of wheezing in young children. Whether this translates into better patient outcomes remains to be determined. The Internet is increasingly becoming the source of healthcare information for laypersons. Walsh and Volsko evaluated the readability of Internet-based consumer health information. This is important as consumer comprehension may be compromised if the content exceeds a 7th grade reading level. The authors found that most of the articles they evaluated exceeded this reading level. As Mishu points out in an accompanying editorial, the results of this study indicate that the consumer health care materials on the websites of the American Heart Association, American Lung Association, American Cancer Society, American Stroke Association, and American Diabetes Association exceed the reading level recommended by the United States Department of Health and Human Services. The study by Petitjean et al. provides important insights to sleep and respiratory function after withdrawal of non-invasive ventilation in patients with chronic respiratory failure. Respiratory events started on the first night off non-invasive ventilation. When non-invasive ventilation was resumed, patients recovered to baseline conditions. Non-invasive ventilation discontinuation promptly leads to nocturnal respiratory failure. This suggests that non-invasive ventilation should not be stopped for more than a day or two. Each year at the International Congress of the American Association for Respiratory Care, there is a symposium sponsored by the Respiratory Care Journal. At the 2007 Congress, the title of the symposium was The Institutional Review Board and You. This was a collection of seven lectures related to human subjects protection and research. This is a topic that affects all researchers, whether they present their study results as an open forum poster at the AARC Congress or submit the study as a full paper to be published in respiratory care or elsewhere. Federal regulations require IRB approval for most human subjects research. Research is defined as a systematic investigation, including research development, testing, and evaluation designed to develop or contribute to generalizable knowledge. Human subjects are considered individuals whose physiologic or behavioral characteristics and responses are the object of study and research. IRB oversight extends to chart reviews and observational studies. 
Also covered are quality assurance projects if they are to be published, even if publication is only in the form of an abstract. If in doubt, the most cautious approach is always to discuss regulatory requirements with the IRB to ensure compliance. That is much better than having this questioned by the editor or abstract reviewers. These papers related to the IRB published in this month's issue are a must-read for both novice and experienced researchers. This month's teaching case comes from Billings et al. from the University of Washington and is entitled Bilateral Diaphragm Paralysis, a Challenging Diagnosis. They describe the presentation of bilateral diaphragm paralysis. They also discuss causes, diagnosis, and treatment of diaphragm paralysis. Although not common, bilateral diaphragm paralysis occurs commonly enough that respiratory care professionals should consider it as a cause of unexplained respiratory failure. Again this month, we publish a variety of papers of interest to the readers of respiratory care. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.